Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Since direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, exhibited predictable pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic profiles in phase three trials, routine plasma level monitoring is not required. However, post-marketing studies of real-world patients continue to illustrate a wide variability in DOAC plasma levels compared to those of the original studies. With the growing use of DOACs in special patient populations, the question of whether this variability in plasma levels correlates to poorer outcomes comes to the forefront. Here to explore the concept of DOAC plasma level monitoring and discuss appropriate utilization and interpretation of DOAC levels is Dr. Nikita Yagnala. Direct oral anticoagulants have revolutionized the field of anticoagulation over the past decade, mainly in part being attractive agents due to their predictable pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties seen in phase three clinical trials, lending to their fixed dosing. However, real world use of these agents have introduced to us clinical scenarios that bring up the question of the utility of therapeutic drug monitoring of DOACs in order to improve clinical outcomes. Here at Mayo Clinic, we've had the ability to order DOAC levels for the past four years. That being said, we really might not have been utilizing these levels as we are surely intended to based on the evidence available so far. Through the course of this presentation, I hope to revamp the way that we think about DOAC levels and leave you all better prepared to integrate them appropriately into your clinical practice. In order to do so, I'll first start by describing the laboratory tests used to estimate DOAC plasma levels. Next, I'll dive into reviewing some of the current literature exploring the association between DOAC plasma levels and clinical outcomes. Finally, I'll outline some of the appropriate utilization and interpretation keys of DOAC plasma levels to integrate them appropriately into clinical practice. As mentioned earlier, DOAC levels have been available here at Mayo Clinic since 2018. Despite the increasing utilization and familiarity of DOAC levels, there are still a lot of clinical questions that remain in terms of what these levels truly represent, how they're different from typical coagulation assays, how to interpret these DOAC level ranges in the context of reference ranges, and what these DOAC levels mean as far as clinical outcomes go for patients. In order to answer many of these questions, I want us to first take a step back and recognize how DOACs work mechanistically within the coagulation cascade. The coagulation cascade involves the activation of a series of clotting factors, which each step activating the next in order to produce sufficient thrombin for it to convert fibrinogen into fibrin to form a cross-linked blood clot. DOACs work by directly inhibiting factor 10A in the case of apixaban, fervoroxaban, or adoxaban, or directly inhibiting thrombin in the setting of dabigatran. In order to assess the coagulation activity of a patient, we typically utilize traditional coagulation assays like prothrombin time or INR, APTT, or anti-10A. These coagulation assays assess different parts of this coagulation cascade in order to provide us with a better understanding of the level of anticoagulation effect that an agent might have in a patient at a given time. Starting off with looking at prothrombin time and INR, it's important for us to recognize how these different traditional coagulation assays are affected by the presence of DOACs. So to take a look at prothrombin time and INR, 
we recognize that prothrombin time is really telling us the time it takes for blood to clot. And it's really looking at those factors in the extrinsic and common pathways. In the presence of DOAC in a patient, prothrombin time in INR really has poor sensitivity to pick up clinically meaningful amounts of DOAC in a patient's bloodstream. So it has poor sensitivity, and we do not recommend utilizing it in order to assess for the presence of DOAC in a patient. Similarly, APTT is also another coagulation assay that we're familiar with that, again, describes the time it takes for blood to clot. Unlike prothrombin time, APTT is really looking at factors more so in the intrinsic and common pathway, bolded in red. Like PT, APTT really has some poor sensitivity to the presence of DOACs, and so it's not an appropriate test that we can utilize to really be able to quantify and assess if a patient has a clinically relevant amount of DOAC in their body at a specific point in time. Transitioning to heparin-calibrated anti-10A levels, this is really a test that uses a color change in order to quantify the amount of factor 10A that's present in a patient's bloodstream. While heparin-calibrated anti-10A levels are sensitive to the presence of DOACs, they're not very specific, and they only provide us with a qualitative measure of the presence of DOAC in a patient's bloodstream. For this reason, a lot of our routine coagulation assays that we're familiar with don't provide us with optimal quantification of DOAC levels present in a patient's bloodstream at a given time, necessitating the need for a novel DOAC level assay. While the, gold standard level, while the gold standard approach to measuring DOAC levels in patients is utilizing liquid chromatography, tandem mass spectrometry, what we've come to realize is that factor 10A inhibitor calibrated chromogenic anti-10A assays really provide us with an excellent indirect measurement of DOAC levels. To better understand the methodology of this assay, we'll first start off with obtaining a patient blood sample of a patient who's recently ingested a pixaban, rivaroxaban, or a doxaban, or factor 10A inhibitor as depicted on the screen. In this assay, a known excess amount of factor 10A is added, which inherently will bind to our factor 10A inhibitor present in the patient's bloodstream. Next, a chromogenic substrate is then added and is going to bind to that residual excess factor 10A that remains unbound in the patient's bloodstream. Upon hydrolyzing the chromogenic substrate, the factor 10A inhibitor will cause a color change to occur with this equation, therefore leading to a color change, which is going to be directly proportional to the amount of factor 10A inhibitor that's, or factor 10A that's present in the bloodstream. To summarize this approach, essentially, as a patient ingests a pixaban and they have a certain level of factor 10A inhibitor in their bloodstream, the greater that concentration of factor 10A inhibitor present, the less excess factor 10A is in the assay, and the less color change we'll see occurring, so the less the absorbance that is actually measured in the assay, allowing us to quantify the amount of factor 10A inhibitor that remains in the patient's bloodstream, identifying that DOAC level. Chromogenic anti-10A assays are really an excellent way and precise method to really measure DOAC levels. When we're comparing the anti-10A assay to our gold standard method of liquid chromatography, tandem mass spectrometry, what we've wrote noticed is that the correlation is quite excellent with a correlation coefficient of 0.97. To get, put this into perspective, when you're looking at an APTT assay and measuring heparin doses, that correlation coefficient is only around 0.2, and it's still something that we use day-to-day -day in practice. So to recognize that this anti-10A assay has a correlation coefficient of 0.97 compared to the gold standard method really validates our approach to utilize this assay in order to properly quantify DOAC levels. So when we think about drawing any sort of lab value in clinical practice, we often think about what's the goal range? What are we shooting for in these patients? Listed here on the slide are the atrial fibrillation trough and peak 
reference ranges that are oftentimes reported in the literature and what are reported in our Mayo Clinic lab catalog for standard dosing of DOAX. Instead of focusing on these reference ranges and the exact cutoffs and numbers presented on this slide, what's going to be a better utilization of our understanding is recognizing where these ranges actually came from and what makes them relevant in our patients and what this means for our patients. To put it in short, the reference ranges that were outlined in the prior slide really just came from the most frequently common seen concentrations in patients included in phase three atrial fibrillation clinical trials. To visualize this another way, let's take a look at a population bell curve where the x-axis represents the various DOAC plasma levels and the y-axis represents the percent of study patients included in a clinical trial who had a corresponding DOAC level. Essentially, the reference or on therapy ranges that you'll be referring, you'll be hearing me refer to these as, were essentially the most frequently seen concentrations in those studies. So 95% of patients in the clinical trial had a DOAC level that fell within this on therapy range. I really want to emphasize the fact that these on therapy ranges don't mean that it's a therapeutic range and they don't necessarily correlate to better or worse clinical outcomes. It's just the most frequently seen concentrations in these studies in these patients included in the studies. This is extremely important to keep in mind as we think about the different patient populations that were actually excluded from these clinical trials such as stage four to five CKD patients, or valvular and liver disease patients, patients at the extremes of weight, and those who are taking concomitant CYP3A4 inhibitors or inducers. So really the on-therapy ranges that are listed in our lab catalog and in the literature don't necessarily represent the ranges that we might see in these special patient populations that were excluded from those studies. That brings us to the question of what do the DOAC levels look like in those special patient populations? It turns out that in real-world pharmacokinetic data, what we found is that patients really have an extremely wide inter-individual variability when it comes to DOAC levels. Listed on this slide are two graphs taking a look at plasma apixaban and plasma rivaroxaban levels across the 24-hour time period with standard dosing. The black curve showcases a typical atrial fibrillation patient and the levels that we would expect in this patient, perhaps a type of patient that was included in the phase three trial. As you can see, Patients who have chronic kidney disease, those at the lower extremes of weight, patients with liver disease, or those who are taking a concomitant CYP3A4 inhibitor tend to have higher plasma levels than what we would typically expect from a patient. Accordingly, patients who are taking concomitant CYP3A4 inducers are showing to have lower levels in the real world compared to our typical patient that we, we'd see in the phase three trials. All this really goes to say, again, that there is an inter-individual variability when it comes to DOAC levels, and the on-therapy ranges that we have listed in our lab catalog and in the literature might not be fully representative of all the different patients we're actually using DOACs in. Before we dive into what this means clinically for these special patient populations, I want to pause right here and dive into our first assessment question. If everyone can take out their smartphones or go to poll.ev, polev.com slash mayorx, or take out your smartphones and text Mayo RX to 22333. The first assessment question is going to be, which of the following is correct regarding DOAC calibrated chromogenic anti-10A assays? A, they're the gold standard measures of DOAC plasma concentrations. B, as factor 10A inhibitor levels decrease, absorbance decreases. C, as factor 10A inhibitor levels decrease, absorbance increases. And D, can be used to assess for achievement of therapeutic ranges. 
The majority of people seem to have gotten the right answer of C. As factor 10A inhibitor levels decrease, absorbance increases. Just to reiterate the methodology of the assay again, we're adding excess factor 10A into the assay, which is going to bind to the chromogenic substrate and create the color change and absorbance. So if there's more inhibitor and more DOAC on board, that DOAC is gonna to bind to the factor 10A, which is gonna prevent that color change from occurring. So as factor 10A inhibitor levels decrease, we're gonna see an increase in the absorbance. So it's just an inverse effect relationship. Therefore, B is incorrect. A, the gold standard of DOAC plasma level measurement is going to be our liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry. However, the chromogenic anti-10A assay shows excellent correlation, which is why we utilize this in Mayo Clinic and in many different institutions. D can be used to assess for achievement of therapeutic ranges. I want to reiterate that while we are able to utilize the chromogenic anti-10A assay to assess the level of DOAC at a given point in time when we're obtaining that blood draw, it doesn't necessarily tell us if a patient is at a therapeutic range or not, because those on-therapy ranges that I have listed and that we talked about are just telling us what the most frequent concentrations were from phase three clinical trials. And we don't yet know if those ranges mean that a patient is therapeutic and if they have appropriate clinical outcomes. And that's really what the second section of my presentation is going to jump into, talking about this inter-individual variability among different patients and whether these ranges mean better clinical outcomes for our patients. As you can see here, we have a bell curve looking at a typical atrial fibrillation patient population and what their on-therapy range might be, and then a chronic kidney disease patient population, and how many of the chronic kidney disease patients tend to have DOAC plasma levels that are shifted a little bit more to the right and seem a little bit higher, perhaps because they're accumulating that DOAC in their bloodstream. The question that remains is that what does this difference really mean in terms of bleeding and thrombotic outcomes? Does a higher DOAC concentration mean that we have, are at a higher risk of bleeding? And does a lower DOAC concentration mean that we're at a higher risk of thrombotic events? In order to really dive into this question, we need to first appreciate and understand the concept of a therapeutic range. To better understand what a therapeutic range really entails, let's think about warfarin, a medication that we're all very well familiar with and that has established to require therapeutic drug monitoring with INR. It's been well-established in randomized controlled trials and cohort studies that as INR increases, we see a swift increase in the risk of hemorrhagic events. And as INR increases, we see a decrease in the risk of thromboembolic events. So it's been well validated that an INR goal typically of two to three is going to be best for our most patients um, in order to minimize the risk of thromboembolic events and hemorrhagic events. However, we don't necessarily have this therapeutic goal range for DOAC patients. What we do have as of now are a couple of clinical studies that are trickling in that try to tell us the association between DOAC plasma concentrations and the risk of bleeding and risk of thrombotic events. So the more robust studies that I wanna discuss with you all today include some of the post-hoc pharmacokinetic analyses of phase three clinical trials for dabigatran, apixaban, and adoxaban. These post-hoc analyses are really aiming to examine the relationship between trough DOAC levels and bleeding and thromboembolic events, and also identifying some risk factors or clinical factors affecting plasma concentration variability and the impact that it has on outcome events. We'll first dive into the RELI post-hoc study looking at dabigatran levels. The RELI study randomized atrial fibrillation patients to two different doses of dabigatran or warfarin. Dabigatran plasma concentrations were measured by the gold standard of liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry about one month into study enrollment. 
taking a look at some of the baseline patient characteristics, I really want to draw your attention to the percent of patients who had higher CHAD scores and has blood scores. We can see that about 30 to 40% of patients had fairly high CHADs and has blood scores, putting them at a higher risk at baseline for thromboembolic and bleeding events. Diving into the results of the RELI study, in order to assess the association between dabigatran plasma concentrations and clinical outcomes, study designers utilize a logistic regression analysis. Taking a look first at the right-hand graph, as you can see, as dabigatran's trough concentrations increase, we do see that increase in the probability of major bleeding events, really kind of doubling the risk of major bleeding at that mark greater than a dabigatran concentration greater than 200. On the right, on the left-hand graph, you can, or on the left-hand graph, you can see that as dabigatran concentrations increase, we're not necessarily seeing that same decline in ischemic stroke or systemic embolism. And really that increased risk of ischemic stroke and systemic embolism is only seen at that very low end of the dabigatran trough concentration range. More importantly, from both of these graphs, what you're able to tell is that age really is one of the more important factors in assessing whether a patient's dabigatran trough concentration is going to be affected into clinical outcomes. From the RELI study, really the key takeaways that I want you all to um, recognize is that safety and efficacy outcomes were somewhat correlated with dabigatran trough concentrations, but we're really only seeing those clinical events at the extremes of the trough concentration ranges. Additionally, the magnitude of dabigatran trough effects on outcomes really depended strongly on other clinical factors, mainly age being the clinical factor, perhaps with a deduction that as age increases, our renal function will decrease, therefore causing patients to be more sensitive to these DOACs. Other key takeaways to keep in mind is that as we recognize, there's really no single plasma concentration range that provides the most optimal benefit to risk ratio for all patients, and it's really going to be patient specific. Inherently with the post hoc analyses, there are going to be some limitations. And with this one, of course, is that there was no temporal proximity of the time of the lab blood draw to the time of the patient clinical event. So that's just something that we need to keep in mind when we're analyzing and drawing conclusions from this data. Transitioning into the Averos post hoc study, now looking at apixaban levels and the clinical outcome events. The Averos study randomized patients with atrial fibrillation to receive either aspirin or apixaban. Patients in the apixaban cohorts had dose reductions based on the who had dose reductions if they met two out of three criteria based on what we commonly know as being age greater than 80, weight less than 60, or serum creatinine greater than 1.5. Apixaban plasma concentrations were measured by the chromogenic anti-10A assay, which is what we have available here at Mayo Clinic. Taking a look at some of the baseline patient characteristics, what we can kind of notice and make um, contrast from the RELI study is that these patients seemed a little bit healthier than patients who were enrolled in that RELI study. Taking a look at the median um, EGFR, we can see that most patients had decent renal function of 71 milliliters per minute, and only 26% of patients had a CHAD score greater than two. So a little bit of a healthier patient population at baseline compared to that prior study. Diving into the results of the Averroes post hoc analysis, again, you'll see graphs that depict or that are depicted similarly to what I had showed from the RELI study. On the left-hand side, you can see the PIXPAN calibrated anti-10A activity. As that increases, the probability of overall bleeding events also seems to increase, really hitting that threshold and that increased risk of overall bleeding at a fairly high PIXPAN level of 400 nanograms per milliliter. 
I want to draw your attention to the fact that at this 400 nanograms per milliliter mark, and as that apixaban level goes up, that confidence interval for the risk of overall bleeding is also fairly wide. So it's not as straightforward as we would really like it to seem, and we need to keep in mind that that confidence interval is quite wide, and there's some variability with these results. Taking a look at the right-hand graph, as a pick span concentrations increased, we really don't see a difference in the increased risk of stroke or systemic embolism. However, when the study designers looked at a group of patients who had the lowest level of apixaban levels on board and compared them with patients across the board of DOAC levels, they recognized that the patients with the lowest DOAC level had a higher risk of stroke and systemic embolism than all the other patients with higher apixaban levels. So important to keep in mind that this is pretty consistent with the RELI study where patients at that lowest level of apixaban seem to be at that highest risk for thromboembolic events or stroke. This study also looked at different factors that affect apixaban levels, namely being ones that we would probably think of on our own, such as age, renal function, female sex, body weight, the use of concomitant CYP3A4 inhibitors, and heart failure, really being different factors that are affecting the apixaban levels, and kind of also validating how we use the two out of three criteria in order to dose adjust our apixaban. Overall, from the Averos post-talk study, Big takeaway points that we can really understand is that the relationship between the incidence of stroke and systemic embolism and apixaban levels were really only seen at that lowest decile of apixaban level, and that it just kind of tapered out as the apixaban levels increased. We saw no relationship between apixaban levels and the incidence of major bleeding. The graph that I had shown on the prior slide was only looking at overall bleeding, and that was really driven by minor bleeding events and not major bleeding events. Study designers postulate that this um, incidence was likely just due to a low event rate at baseline, perhaps because our patients were a little bit healthier and the study was just not powered to detect this association. Finally, we can see that renal function followed by age, sex, and weight were really independent clinical predictors of trophopixaban concentrations. Overall, I think what we can get out of the study and recognize is that perhaps patients were a little bit healthier, so we weren't able to see as many clinical events from a bleeding and thrombotic risk standpoint, so we're just not seeing the trends that we saw from that RELI study. In an effort to now synthesize the two post-hoc analyses we've looked at so far and try to better understand a DOAC therapeutic window, I think some takeaways that we can really extrapolate right now from the literature is recognizing that at extremely low DOAC plasma concentrations, we do see that increased thrombotic risk. And at extremely high DOAC concentrations, we do tend to see that association of increased bleeding events. But overall, in that middle range, it seems like DOACs tend to have a wider therapeutic window than what was originally postulated based on those on-therapy ranges. And in this wide therapeutic window, I think what's going to play a bigger effect on determining the risk of bleeding and thrombotic events is recognizing patient-specific factors that are going to contribute to those risks of clinical events. The edoxaban post-hoc analysis does a phenomenal job at really highlighting the importance of taking patient-specific characteristics into place when we're determining the risk of thrombotic and bleeding events in patients, and not necessarily just relying on DOAC levels on their own. The ENGAGE-AF-TIMI trial is, going, is randomizing atrial fibrillation patients to receive warfarin, high-dose edoxaban, or low-dose edoxaban. Patients in the high and low-dose adoxaban groups receive a dose reduction if they met any of the three criteria of creatinine clearance between 30 to 50, total body weight less than 60 kilograms, or a drug interaction with a CYP3A inhibitor. 
Taking a look at the results of this study, what I really want to focus your attention towards is the fact that patients in the high dose adoxaban group who required a dose reduction, so those in the 30 milligram group, had a higher risk of stroke, major bleeding, and all cause mortality compared to patients in the low dose adoxaban group who did not require a dose reduction and got that similar 30 milligram dose. Essentially, what you're seeing here is that patients who had one of those three criteria and were inherently at a higher risk for bleeding and required that dose reduction still tended to have a higher risk for stroke and systemic embolism compared to patients who didn't require a dose reduction and got the same dose. Ultimately, what we can take away from the study is that clinical patient-specific factors seem to impart risks that are not fully captured by their effect on DOAC concentration. As you can see in the mean adoxaban concentration box, patients who received a dose reduction had a mean adoxaban concentration of 34.6, which is higher than the patients who received 30 milligram dose, but had a concentration of 24.5. So while their adoxaban concentration was higher, they were still at a higher risk of thrombotic events. And so it's def definitely not something, a DOAC level is definitely not something we should be taking kind of on its own, like how we typically take INR to goal for two to three. Real-world data really continues to support this notion that DOAC levels are probably just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to assessing for patients' thrombotic and bleeding event risks. While we would really like to believe that patients who sit at a lower range of DOAC levels have higher thrombotic events and patients who have more above-on therapy levels tend to have more bleeding events, what we're finding out in the literature is that patients are having these clinical events throughout the spectrum of DOAC plasma levels, and that there's more to the clinical picture of the patient that's dictating their risk for thrombotic and bleeding events. So with that, I want to bring everyone to the next assessment question. In five words or less, what are your key takeaways from the evidence presented so far? All right, I'll start reading them out. More confused on what to do. Don't order levels. Don't underdose. Interpret with caution. Whoa. DOACs have a wider therapeutic window. Levels plus or minus helpful. I like it. So yeah, ultimately, I think everyone's kind of having the same sort of conclusions that I had when I was looking at this literature. I think just to kind of summarize my thoughts so far and what everyone seems to agree with as well, it seems like at these extremes of ranges, we are seeing an association with clinical events and DOAC levels. But really, DOACs might just have a wider therapeutic range, and we really should be thinking more about the entire patient clinical picture and patient-specific factors when assessing for thrombotic and bleeding event rates. All right, so in order to dive into my final section, I wanted to start off initially by polling the audience on what you believe, which of the following scenarios you believe would be appropriate to consider a DOAC level in. A 75-year-old frail woman with stage 2 CKD on apixaban, a 42-year-old malnourished underweight patient on apixaban, a 30-year-old female post-op day 6 from ruin Y gastric bypass on rivaroxaban, or a 64-year-old morbidly obese male on rivaroxaban. And so this is going to be just a poll, so give it your best shot, and then I'll kind of go through what my thoughts are, and then we'll circle back to this question after a couple of slides. No one is choosing D, but I see kind of an even split between our patient with CKD and a patient post-op ruin Y gastric bypass. All right, so a little bit across the board, but an even split between chronic kidney disease and ruin Y, looks like. So I think the total poll answers and kind of what everyone's thinking so far is pretty in line with what we've been doing here at Mayo Clinic and the different types of patient populations that we've been obtaining DOAC levels in in the past four years. 
As you can see, there's various different indications and in special populations that have been postulated where we should be obtaining DOAC levels. Patients with chronic kidney disease, though at low, those at low body weights, or those with drug interactions with CYP inhibitors may be at a higher risk of above on therapy ranges. And these are some of the patients that we've been ordering levels in in the past four years. Additionally, patients who come in with active venous thromboembolism or active ischemic stroke may potentially be getting levels ordered because we're worried about them being at a below on therapy range. Additionally, those with malabsorption or those with CYP3A4 inducers or other indications where we've been getting levels, fearing that they're below on therapy range. For the majority of our levels that we've been ordering in the past four years, it seems like we've been ordering levels during that periprocedural period in order to rule out the presence of a clinically relevant DOAC on board before the patient goes into surgery. I would say historically, while these indications in special populations seem reasonable to order levels in, in the past few years, we've had a robust amount of clinical data come out that really supports the use of DOACs in a lot of these special patient populations. Just kind of outlining some of the data that's present so far in the utility of DOACs and the clinical safety and efficacy of DOACs in these patient populations, you can see on this table that patients with obesity, those who are underweight, those with chronic kidney disease, and those who are elderly tend to show similar, if not superior outcomes in terms of thrombotic and bleeding risks compared to our kind of standard anticoagulant of choice, warfarin. So really in the setting of obesity, we recognize that patients who have a BMI greater than 50 tend to have similar bleeding and thrombotic events compared to patients who have a more typical BMI of 19 to 30. And really in our underweight CKD and elderly patient populations, compared to warfarin, which is the typical standard of care, DOACs are probably better at reducing that major bleeding risk and that major thrombotic risk. So acknowledging that we have this robust clinical outcomes data to support the use of DOACs in some of these special patient populations, I propose that we should be limiting who we're really obtaining our DOAC levels in and really streamlining it to a certain patient populations where we just don't have that clinical outcomes data available yet to support fixed dose DOAC use. I really think we should be focusing our DOAC level monitoring in patients where we're afraid of them being at a below on therapy range. More specifically, patients with malabsorptive states, like status post RU and Y, and then patients with drug interactions, like CYP3A4 inducers, because we've seen from the literature that patients who have extremely low DOAC levels are at that increased thrombotic event rate. As far as DOAC levels, when we're afraid of on-therapy levels go, I think that this is still something that needs to be well teased out because we recognize that as DOAC levels increase, there potentially is that increase in major bleeding risk, but it really depends on patient-specific factors that go into play. And so I would say that if a patient has three of the characteristics listed on the slide, then perhaps on a case-by-case -case basis, we can make a discussion with the team to order a DOAC level to help support understanding if this patient's at a higher or lower bleeding risk. So to circle back to my personal answer for assessment question number three, which of the following scenarios would be appropriate to consider a DOAC level in? I personally believe that C, a 30-year-old female post-op day six from a RU&Y gastric bypass on river accident would be the most appropriate a patient where a DOAC level would probably help us in coming to a clinical decision on what to do with this patient's anticoagulation. When thinking about ordering DOAC levels, there are a couple practical considerations to keep in mind. First and foremost, we want to ensure that our patient is at steady state with the DOAC. When differing between whether to obtain a trough level or a peak level, this is really going to depend on the type of agent that the patient is on and the indication for obtaining the DOAC level. 
If you're worried about malabsorption, for example, perhaps ordering a peak level to ensure that the DOAC is being absorbed would be appropriate. Additionally, if a patient is on rivaroxaban and you're more afraid of bleeding events, then knowing rivaroxaban is once daily dosing and it has an extremely high peak, which perhaps is postulated to lead to that increased bleeding event rate, obtaining a peak might be a better option. For simplicity's sake, trough levels are appropriate and correlate appropriately to peak levels as well. So you can obtain trough levels in the majority of our patients with the pixaban and still get to the final um, outcome that you would want to reach to. So the million dollar question, once you obtain a level and you see that it's either above or below range is going to be, what decision do you make? How do you react to this level? So really, I want to leave off the remainder of the presentation by giving some clinical decision-making thought into the options that you have when you obtain a DOAC level and you recognize that it's either above or below therapy. The first is that you can decrease the dose off-label. Second, switch to an alternative agent. And third, make no changes. So decreasing the dose off-label is something that I would personally recommend against. There's been literature by and far suggesting that off-label dose reductions of DOACs do lead to increased thrombotic events and increased mortality and poor outcomes for our patients. That being said, I do want to be transparent with everyone and provide you with a novel study that had been um, published in 2019 that looked at factor 10A inhibitor dose reductions in response to above on therapy levels. These study designers postulated that there was no bleeding or thrombotic events in these Japanese patients who had the off-label dose reduction during a 17-month follow-up period. While this is a novel study and is something I just want everyone to be aware of, I do want to caution you that this study is extremely underpowered, requiring about 1,600 patients to be enrolled in order to achieve and get the clinical outcome rates we would want to see to make appropriate deductions. But the, these patients, there was only about 300 patients included in this final study, so highly underpowered. Additionally, dose adjustments may have less impact on outcomes in our Japanese patient populations, and so it's difficult to extrapolate this data to our current patient population here at Mayo Clinic. So important to keep in mind, but recognizing that it's not something I would extrapolate and utilize to make dose um, reductions off-label in our patients. So risks likely outweigh benefits for dose reductions. The next option that you have is to switch to an alternative agent or make no changes. Really, when you come between these two options, it's going to depend on the entire clinical picture. We've recognized that a DOAC level might be above range, but what is the patient's clinical picture looking like? What is their has blood score, concomitant agents on board, renal and hepatic function? Taking that entire clinical factor into account in order to make your decision is really going to be your best bet. A similar type of strategy is going to be utilized when we obtain levels that are below on therapy trough goals. Again, increasing a dose off-label is highly risky, and there have been literature by and far showcasing that patients are just at a higher major bleeding risk, and there's increased risk of death when we're increasing doses off-label. When we're switching between alternative agents, when we're thinking about switching between alternative agents to making no changes, I do want to point out that if a patient does have a disease state where we do think that their DOAC is going to be lower than what their DOAC absorption is going to be very poor, or their DOAC level is going to be extremely low, let's leverage that level a little bit and use it as a factor to make an argument to the team, along with all the other clinical factors of the patient, to switch to another agent. So to wrap up the presentation, I want to leave everyone with some of the unknowns that we still have when it comes to DOAC levels and where the future lies with DOAC level monitoring. 
First and foremost, I believe that robust data is still required to define the relationship between DOAC concentrations and clinical outcomes, specifically when we think about special patient populations like chronic kidney disease or liver disease, where we just don't know what the on-therapy range yet is for those patients. Next is going to be recognizing that patient-specific factors are really playing a bigger role in determining the clinical event rate in patients. So having a better clarification of what patient-specific factors we should be looking at to assess for risks of major bleeding and systemic embolism in our patients on DOACs. Finally, we could have ongoing discussions with um, our providers on what patient populations would benefit the most from obtaining DOAC levels to ultimately have prospective data to assess some outcomes associating the um, bleeding and thrombotic rate with off-label dose modifications. I think this is really gonna come last and is something that we need to assess for last prior to establishing what this therapeutic range for DOACs really is. So to summarize the presentation today and bring us back to what we do know about DOAC levels so far and how we should be utilizing them in practice, first and foremost, important to remember that DOAC level on therapy ranges really just originate from the averages seen in phase three clinical trials, and they don't represent therapeutic ranges. We do know that the absolute extremes of ranges may be associated with an increased risk of thromboembolic and bleeding events, but we don't necessarily know what the middle range does yet, and it's definitely more of a patient-specific factor that plays into account when assessing the risk of clinical events. I want to urge everyone to be cautious about who you're ordering DOAC levels in and really saving those DOAC levels for patients where we don't have good clinical outcome data to support fixed dosing, perhaps utilizing them in patients with malabsorptive states or those with drug interactions with CYP3A4 inducers. Of course, further prospective research is going to be warranted as we figure out the best way to optimally utilize DOAC levels in order to enhance clinical outcomes in our patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.